on our hearts and bringing to light the truth that we so desperately need to cling a hold of and to anchor our lives to. And, Lord, even so much more in the day that we live, that we will be steadfast in these things. Help us in, uh, to be right and to do these things. Lord, regardless of the, the cost, I pray that you'd help us to be willing to be bold and steadfast in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we uh, jumped into Ecclesiastes. We got almost all the way through it. I just wanted to touch on a couple things that we kind of, I felt kind of like we had to rush towards the end of it uh, to deal with. Uh, we talked about the fact that this was, uh, as far as we know, written by uh, Solomon. There's very strong indication of that uh, throughout the book. And uh, the idea is this is a, uh, a book that is written, or that the things that are found in it are messages that are written to the assembly of the nation of Israel. And uh, Solomon calls Israel together and says, here's some, some messages, and uh, it's a preaching that takes place that Solomon gives here. Uh, this is taking place in the early part of his um, reign over Israel. This is before he gets into uh, idolatry and immorality and things that happen later in his uh, life. This is while he's still doing uh, things in the sight of God and fearing God and uh, doing the things that are right for Israel. Uh, he writes these things. And he speaks of the fact that uh, there is uh, vanity under the sun, uh, that whether it be pleasure, whether it be prosperity, whether it be fame or fortune, uh, that the answer to the quality of life, our purpose on earth, uh, is not found in those things. He talks about the fact that it's just vanity. Um, there's nothing to it. There's no substance to it. There's no, um, you get to the end of your life and there's, there's regret there. By the way, we see a, a, a rash today of um, uh, suicides. We see people who do not value life, and they, they make laws and rules according to the fact that life has no value to it at all. And it's because they do not understand that without God in their lives, there is no purpose. Uh, all is vain. All is vanity. And Paul, or, uh, Solomon writes it this way. He says, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Um, he had tried everything there that you could try and could not find the answer there. And as you read through this, you'll, you'll get to the, to the place, and if you're, I challenged you last week to, to maybe read through it this week. Uh, as you read through it, your, your initial thought is, this is depressing. Uh, you just want to kind of be like, well, why should I even live anymore? Let's just pray God take us on home here. Until you get to the end of the book. And... Uh, we find that the, the portrayal here in Ecclesiastes that Solomon gets to, and he spends the vast majority of the book doing it, is the emptiness in life without Christ, without God. Uh, that it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. But the lesson to be learned is that man's highest good, the, the place where he is most satisfied in life, where he has uh, absolute contentment, absolute joy, absolute peace, uh, is when we come to the place where we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our purpose for living. He is our substance of life. There are several key verses here I want us to look at. First of all, I'll turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and uh, verse number 24. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse number 24. And uh, this, is, this is the early um, conclusion, if you will, um, 
that, uh, that Solomon comes to. He says, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. In other words, he was saying, if you do all these things and you are not, uh, you're not putting God in it, that there's still that emptiness there. The only thing that is making sense in life is when you have God dealing with these things as far as our labor, our enjoyment, uh, our eating, our drinking. In fact, Paul, I believe it is, uh, wrote about that. And he said, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the what? Glory of God. In other words, in, in those areas of life, uh, the only way it makes sense to us is to have God involved in it. Uh, he gets to the conclusion of the book in chapter 12. You'll turn over there with me. He gets to the end of the matter in chapter 12. And let's look in verse number 13 and 14. As he, he pens kind of his last thoughts. He makes all of these statements, all of these observations. And finally he comes to one grand conclusion at the end of it all. Okay, And here's what he came up with. The wisest man in the world. Alright, here we go. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And Solomon, after years of living, after years of trying everything that was available to try, uh, pleasure, fame, fortune, wealth, all of it was empty, all of it was vanity and vexation of spirit to him, until he found out that there's only reason to life as we put God in, 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 his, in the, his rightful place. Chapter number 12 is the key chapter. It's the chapter that brings the conclusion of the matter. Uh, we live in a time where, really, to be honest with you, our, our world needs to understand this one truth right here. If they can understand this one truth, the morals of our society would be improved. The fact that the value of life would be improved greatly. And men and women would see purpose in their own lives. Uh, it's amazing to me how many times I've, I've heard Christian young people come to me and say, I just want to end it all. I was talking to a fellow just last week uh, and somebody that's not, not a part of our church. And he said, Pastor, I just have no, no reason to continue living. And I um, spent a great deal of time uh, explaining to him that God has something very real and special for his life. It's amazing to me how sometimes even people who name the name of Christ get to a place of discouragement and think that all is vanity. There's no purpose. There's no strength in this. And... Um, we only find value in life as we put God as, as the head of it, the part of it that our life revolves around. Uh, only through Him. Uh, a lot of people uh, try to live life the way they want to live life. They try to do things in, in a way that uh, meets the things that the world says will bring a lot of pleasure and a lot of joy. And they get to the end of it all and they find emptiness there. They find vanity they find vexation of spirit. They find regret. And uh, I'll tell you, nobody that ever sold out for the Lord and gave Him all that they had 
and live for Him. Nobody ever got to the end of their life having done that and said, I wish I had not done so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have sat at a lot of bedsides as people were dying and heard them say, I sure wish I had done more for the Lord. I've always heard that. I've never heard somebody say, I wish I hadn't done so much. Because the purpose of life is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, only in Him. And uh, I hope we understand that. It will help us set our priorities in this life the way they ought to be. Uh, it will help us to put Him first, to make Him preeminent in our, in our actions, in our activities, in the things that we do. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not one of these fellows who says, well, there's never a time for recreation or rest. But we are such a recreation-crazed society today, it seems like we worship it. And that's all we seek, is the recreation. And I'm, I'm for recreation when we can have it. I took my son fishing the other day. There's nothing wrong with that. But it ought not be the thing that we seek for purpose in our life in. It ought not to be the thing we're seeking for joy and satisfaction, because you won't find it there. It's not going to be there. And uh, put Christ first. In fact, Matthew said it this way when he was recording what Jesus said. He penned these words. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And he was speaking in the context of it in Matthew chapter number 6. He's speaking in the context of the affairs of this life. He said you shouldn't be concerned about uh, worried about, fretting over what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to uh, wear, where you're going to live. He said, you put Christ first. All these things will take care of themselves. God will take care of that and uh, make Him first. All right, and that ends Ecclesiastes. I will say this. Uh, there's basically three divisions uh, of Ecclesiastes. I'll give those to you real quickly. They're in the notes. And I'll, I think I thought I had them back there. I didn't see them earlier. I know I took them back there Wednesday, but I think they got moved this week during Vacation Bible School. So I'll make some more copies. Um, but the, uh, in verses uh, 1 through 11 of chapter number 1, we find uh, the initial um, hypothesis, if you will, I guess. Uh, he makes the statement, all is vanity. He pretty well establishes what he's going to be dealing with here, uh, the subject matter. Uh, he deals with the premise of uh, the fact that all is vanity. And then he spends the next six chapters... Uh, giving proof to it, uh, showing by proofs that all is vanity. And then in chapter number 7 through chapter 12, uh, in light of the fact that all is vanity under the sun without Christ, then he spends five chapters dealing with how to live in the light of the fact that all is vanity under the sun. How should we live then? And uh, so he kind of breaks it into those areas and deals with them. Uh, he makes the message. And then he brings in the practical application to life. And I think it's a wonderful way, a good pattern to look at Scripture in. We learn the truth, and then we find the way to apply it to our lives. And a great pattern there given. All right, the book of Song of Solomon. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll go ahead and jump into that this week and uh, hopefully get this one done this week as, as quickly as we can uh, and yet still do it justice. <clears throat> Song of Solomon is a very unique book in Scripture. In fact, uh, it's written in a poetic form. It's a love letter uh, from Solomon to his uh, beloved, he calls her. And um, she, uh, he uses there, because of the nature of how it's written, there are 49 words in, in Song of Solomon that are found nowhere else in Scripture. 
Uh, very interesting thought there, and uh, I'm not, I'll let you figure out which ones they are. You can go and, and research them. Uh, but uh, it's a love letter uh, from Solomon to uh, a little farm girl, uh, a little Shudamite, Shudamite girl. At the time of the writing, uh, there was uh, about, he had about 140 or so uh, wives and or uh, concubines. At one point in his life, he ends up with uh, 300 and 700, almost 1,000 uh, women that uh, Solomon had uh, in his household. Out of all of those, some people that I've read on this particular book feel like there was only one out of all of those that was Solomon's true love, that he really loved with all of his heart. And that was this little farm girl uh, that uh, is spoken of here in Song of Solomon. Uh, it tells of uh, his wooing of her and how he uh, courted her and tried to impress her and uh, how he uh, wins her love and her heart. Um, and uh, this is a literal book. Uh, some people say, well, no, it's an allegory only. Some people say it's a, um, a metaphor of some, some greater truth. And there is some of that, certainly no doubt. But it is an actual event. It is a historical event. Uh, the, these things have very specific places, very specific names that are used, uh, locations that are used, um, very descriptive things of what was actually in place in Solomon's palace at the time. Uh, we're pretty certain that Solomon does write this. Uh, in fact, it's known uh, by uh, early on, before um, uh, about the 1500s or so, the book was commonly referred to as the Song of Songs. Uh, and we find that from verse one in uh, chapter one and verse one, where it says the Song of Songs. And so, for many years, uh, many centuries, the book was referred to as the Song of Songs. And what that meant was, out of all the songs, uh, according to First Kings chapter four, Solomon had written over a thousand different songs. Uh, we often think of David as the great psalmist, and he is. Um, but Solomon wrote a lot of songs too. And uh, out of all the songs that he wrote. This was considered the greatest uh, above all of them. And so it was referred to as not just a song of Solomon, but the song of songs. Out of all the ones that he had written, the great song. Um, and uh, we find that, again, it's given a, uh, attributed to Solomon there in verse number 1, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. And so it belongs to him. And uh, there are, I believe, about seven or eight different references throughout the book specifically naming Solomon as the writer uh, of this particular uh, letter. Uh, one of the things that it deals with, or main subject that it deals with, of course, is the love for a man and a woman, and uh, that the highest fulfillment on earth is the love that a man can have for a woman or a woman can have for a man. But it pictures that the highest love that we can have spiritually is the love that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he loves us unconditionally. Uh, the book is arranged uh, in the order of three different speakers. Um, it's somewhat confusing sometimes as you read it because you don't always know. It's not really clear every time when it changes from one speaker to the next. So you don't always know who's speaking. Uh, you have to really pay attention closely and try to try to finagle between the three speakers. But there are three three folks that are speaking here, three uh, people or groups of people that are speaking here. One is uh, the bride. This is the little Shulamite girl, a uh, little farm girl. And so she speaks uh, in this book, and she's quoted there. Uh, Solomon, as the king, is also 
one of the speakers in this, and he uh, talks and woos her, tries to woo her. Uh, and then there is a chorus, uh, a group of folks that speak in this psalm. Uh, and these are known as the daughters of Jerusalem. These would be um, an equivalent, if you will, to a bridal party perhaps, something along that line of the Shulamite girl, uh, and would be her attendants uh, that would, uh, would speak here in this particular book. So you have three different uh, people or groups of people that are speaking. Uh, as you read that, you need to understand that and uh, understand that they don't always say, now this is the one that's speaking. So uh, if something doesn't make a lot of sense in how you're reading it, Think through, okay, who's speaking in this one? Did, did they switch gears here without telling me? And a lot of times you'll find that that will help clarify it and make it easier to understand. Uh, you'll find that, okay, if it's the Shulamite speaking here, then I understand that. Or if this is the, uh, the chorus, or the, the, the bridal party that's speaking, then I understand that. And uh, you can usually tell from the context, uh, but it's not always readily apparent. Uh, you have to kind of... Really pay attention and dig a little deep into some of that to understand who's speaking at, the, at that particular time. Um, oh, let's see here. Solomon is specifically mentioned throughout the book as the author. Um, he is identified as the groom in this particular book. Uh, also, in chapter number 3, if you'll take time to look there, let's look in uh, verse number 6. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse number 6. He says this, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver and the bottom thereof of gold and covering it of purple in the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals in the day of the gladness of his heart. And so it references here um, the palatial benefits or uh, the royal... uh, uh, luxuries that he enjoyed. Uh, it says here he made a chariot out of uh, out of the cedars of Lebanon uh, because he was trying to to impress the young ladies. And uh, isn't it amazing? Uh, over all the years, uh, men still are simple men. Uh, we don't build chariots anymore to impress women, but a lot of times we build a muscle car or truck or whatever. Yeah, we try to we. Uh, I remember years ago, my dad talking about, he grew up in Connersville, Indiana, and they had a, a downtown area that had a, a little diner, drive-in diner, and they had a street that went down in front of it and down the side of it, down the back of it, and down the other side. He said on Friday nights, they'd all line up there, and they'd just be squalling their tires, just going around in a square all night trying to impress the girls, and then they'd pull in try and get a girlfriend, you know. And uh, it's, it's interesting, I chuckle as I read this about Solomon, because uh, he builds the nicest chariot, you know. And, and then it talks about the fact he did all this because he loved the daughters of Jerusalem. He was trying to impress the girls, if you will. And uh, so understand that uh, this is uh, most certainly uh, Solomon's song. There's not hardly any doubt about that. Uh, of course, First Kings chapter 4 also mentions the fact. It also mentions in First Kings that he is a scholar of plant and animal life. Uh, Solomon had a great, great knowledge of this. 
And in this particular book, which is really interesting, uh, just an interesting tidbit, I don't know that it will help us understand the book any better, but something kind of trivial that might be interesting to know. He mentions 21 different species of plants in this book and 15 different species of animals. And again, just kind of amazes us as we think of Solomon and the wisdom and the knowledge that God had given him, uh, more so than, than most common men of the day. And uh, just a tremendous uh, fellow, this guy. Uh, and again, uh, later in life, he, he does uh, drift from the Lord. He gets into immorality. He allows the women that uh, he had so much enjoyed uh, wooing them to become an influence. And they brought idolatry into his household. And he began to follow after the idols of the women. And uh, so uh, this, was, this was done before that time when he was still young and following after the things of the Lord. It's probably written around 965 B.C., so about a thousand years before Christ. And uh, it's got uh, references to 15 different geographical locations, including Egypt and Samaria and some of those places back then. Uh, the Christ of the Song of Solomon is Christ pictured here. Uh, I, I would have to say it this way. Uh, in the Old Testament, oftentimes, the nation of Israel is referred as the Bride of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital, all letters, L-O-R-D, or the, or the Bride of God Himself, um, the L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We find that in Isaiah chapter 54 and verse number 5. Uh, we find that in Jeremiah chapter, uh, actually in Isaiah 54, verse 5, it, it calls him the Maker, capital M A K E R, Maker, uh, or the one that created them. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse number 2, and Ezekiel chapter number 16, verses 8 through 14. We find that there are references to the, to the fact that Israel <clears throat> is the bride of, uh, of, uh, of God Himself. Now, there's been some. I want to try to help you with something. I'm not going to do an extensive study on this right now, but I do want to help you with something that uh, some people have been confused on in, the, in years past. And if you're not careful on this, you can misread Scripture and, and misunderstand some things. The New Testament church in the New Testament is not referred to as the bride of Christ at this time. It is referred to as His body. We're the body of Christ. Uh, there is a time in Revelation where we will become the bride of Christ, along with the nation of Israel, those that have been saved out of that nation. Not everyone from the nation of Israel will be part of the bride of Christ. Uh, only those that have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you and I have. We have been grafted in. We've been given that opportunity to become part of them. Uh, you need to keep this in mind as we read Scripture. Because sometimes it will reference the bride of Christ. If we're not careful, we'll relate to that as us today. And that is not dealing with us today and in this time. Uh, we are referred to in the New Testament exclusively, uh, those that are believers, as uh, the body of Christ. And uh, then uh, it does tell us that Christ loved us in Ephesians chapter number 5. It talks about the fact that Christ loved the church the same way that a husband loves his wife. Uh, but it doesn't yet call us His bride. We will, in the later part of the book of Revelation in chapter 21, uh, be a part of that because we will be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I'm so thankful for that we get that opportunity. But we will become part of that bride. Uh, those that are saved and have trusted Him as their Savior will be part of that bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting. I'm, I, I, again, I won't uh, give a full theological 
uh, reasoning behind this that in the Old Testament they're referred to as the, the bride or the wife of uh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then uh, from the New Testament on, it is referred to as the bride of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a distinction there. And uh, we'll do a further study on that down the road somewhere. But I wanted to try to just give a real quick um, uh, instruction on that from Scripture to show that there is a distinction there. And if we're not careful, if we'll read something wrong in Scripture, there's times we'll misread something and apply it when it shouldn't be applied the way that it is. And so try to keep that in mind, if you will, and uh, understand that. Um, as we get to the keys to the Song of Solomon, the key word here, of course, is uh, love. Uh, and this is a love that is expressed not just in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but in marriage itself. Um, it is an actual historical account. Uh, of this and uh, love between Solomon and the Shulamite girl. Um, but it does also picture the love that God has uh, for Israel uh, and is stated and illustrated certainly in other places of Scripture in the Old Testament, quite a few places where God expresses His love for Israel, the fact that she is His bride and uh, His wife in many cases. In fact, so much so that when they uh, the Bible refers to the words that they went whoring after other nations or they played the harlot. They were committing a spiritual adultery by going and following the idols of other nations. Um, God tells them in the book of Isaiah, He said, I've divorced you. I've given you a bill of divorcement. And uh, He does bring them back in the end, and I'm thankful that He's not through with Israel. Um, but He has for a time period here for the last several thousand years uh, dealt primarily through the church, the local New Testament church, to do His work. And, uh, but I'm thankful we have the opportunity to be grafted in, to be a part of that. And so we thank the Lord for that opportunity. Uh, let's look at the key verses here, chapter number 7, and uh, look in verse number 10, Song of Solomon chapter 7, and uh, verse number 10. Uh, Solomon, write, uh, uh, Solomon writes this, he says, I am my beloved's. Beloveds and his desires toward me. And this, of course, is the Shulamite girl speaking here and referencing the, the, the bridegroom, if you will, uh, or her husband. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. I love what is spoken of in the book of um, uh, Hosea. If you know the story behind Hosea, uh, God told Hosea to go and marry a woman of ill repute. She was already someone who is not really the, the most pure and wholesome type of a person. And so he does. He goes and he marries her. And uh, she leaves him and commits adultery uh, with other folks. And, of course, her life goes downhill and she is sold into slavery and uh, put at the auction block. And God tells uh, Hosea uh, to go and buy her back. And uh, he said... Uh, there was a truth that is taught in Hosea that I think is one of the most incredible truths. I, uh, when, when Israel was not faithful to God, God still loved Israel. By the way, when you and I are not faithful, God still loves us. And no matter how far we get away from Him, He's still ready to welcome us back with open arms. And He is Israel as well. Great, great truth. And He does this to, to, to show Israel. He specifically told Hosea to do these things because Israel needed to see firsthand 
the love of God, the fact that He was long-suffering, the fact that it did not matter whether they loved Him or not, He still loved them. And isn't that an amazing truth? Our, our love, our, God's love for us is not dependent upon us loving Him back. That's an amazing truth. I'm thankful that He loves us no matter what. And knowing that truth, if anything, it causes us to love Him even more. To realize that whether I love Him or not, He still loves me. I've heard people say, well, I just, I just don't know. After all I've done in my life, I just don't see how God could love me. He does. He does. He doesn't give up on us. And uh, a beautiful picture here um, in this particular verse. The second key verse is found in chapter number 8 and verse number 7. Chapter number 8 and verse number 7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. And uh, he's speaking here of the magnitude of the love here. He's talking about the fact that the waters can't quench it, the floods can't drown it. And he said, if a man gave everything he had in his possession for love, it wouldn't be enough. It doesn't hold a candle to the value of a love like this. And this is the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I had everything in the world, if I, if I was the wealthiest man in the world, and I gave everything I had, to try to pay the debt of love that I owe God for His love for me. It wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. There's a pricelessness, an inexhaustibility to the value of the love that God has for you and I. And uh, this is the picture of Song of Solomon, what it's referring to. Uh, the key chapter, of course, uh, in Song of Solomon, uh, you can't pick one. Out of all eight chapters, if you try to take one out of the others and say this summarizes or brings the truth to a head and, and states the truth, you can't do it. You have to take the book as a whole. So there really is no key chapter in this particular book. This is the first book we've gotten to that I really can't point to a particular key chapter and say this one is the one that kind of pulls it all together. It's a full narrative, and it has to be taken that way uh, really as a whole to be able to understand uh, the truth and the magnitude of this. Uh, it's broken into two halves, chapters 1 through 4, state the beginning of their love, their courtship, um, the time of expressing their love one to another. And then there is uh, the broadening of verse number five, chapters number 5 through 8, the broadening of that love. And by the way, that ought to be the pattern of the Christian life. There's a beginning of love for God when we get saved, but that shouldn't be the end of it. There should be a continued broadening of that love, loving God every day more and more. By the end of Song of Solomon, they love, they love each other more than they did when they were courting. I've said this before. My uncle years ago told me when I got married, uh, he said, there's a secret to my, your aunt and I, and I just visited with him here a few, few uh, weeks ago. I was down in Florida. They came over for a day. And uh, he said, I tell your aunt as often as I can, as, as often as I remember to, he said, I tell her I love you more today than I did yesterday but not as much as I'll love you tomorrow. And I thought, well, what a great, great truth. If we could get that way with our relationship with God. Lord, I love you more today than I did yesterday, but not as much as I'm going to love you tomorrow. And to be able to broaden that love for Him day by day by day. 
I get, I, I laugh and chuckle. I, I've got some teenage kids, and I've got one that's turning 25 here in a couple of weeks, a few weeks. And um, but I've got some teenage kids, and it's funny to hear them talk about when they first start liking somebody, and they got some guy or girl that shows them a little interest. And boy, I mean, the first time they meet and they uh, get feel the heart pounding and their palms get sweaty, they they think that's the love of their life, and they're going to spend an eternity together. And two weeks later, they've already got their their house planned, their jobs planned, how many kids they're going to have, where they're going to live, and uh, they think this. And as a parent, you kind of chuckle, realizing very very rarely, not not impossible, but rarely, does that ever work out. Because their their capability and understanding of true love is just not there yet. It hasn't fully developed. And the same is true oftentimes when we get saved and we begin to love the Lord. Our full development of our love for Him hasn't fully developed. And the truth is, it will be a lifetime of it continuing to broaden without ever reaching a place of saying, I'm finally there. I love Him as much as I possibly can. I believe there's a daily growth, a broadening of that love day in and day out. The more we get to know Him, the more we walk with Him, the more we love on Him and understand Him, uh, the more we love Him uh, every day. Uh, the songwriter wrote years ago, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And, uh, and that, that's the way it ought to be in the Christian life. It really should. Uh, it ought to be sweeter day by day. All right, let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word and for uh, giving it to us. And, Lord, while we're not taking verse-by-verse study on these books, it does help us to have a good overview and a bird's-eye view of uh, how they're written, who they're written to, who's doing the talking, and a little bit of the background, a little bit of the setting uh, that we find these books in. And, Lord, I pray that you will uh, allow us to 